Hey everyone, this is Aubrey. And this is Melody. And we want to welcome you to our new podcast, Mostly Mostly Macabre. We are a true crime podcast, mostly. We're going to talk about all sorts of things. So not just true crime, any interest that we have really. Supernatural, past Reincarnation. (laughs) Crimes. Of course, mm-hmm. grimes and good times. You like scandals. Oh my goodness, I love a good scandal. <laughs> I love some drama. I don't like to be in it, but I do love a good drama. I have to kick back and watch mm-hmm. it. But who yeah. doesn't? <laughs> I'm the lady that's outside with a vacuum cleaner just seeing what's going on. <laughs> Dusting the plants. <laughs> <laughs> don't mind me. <laughs> so we met at work. We did. So that's how mm-hmm. Aubrey and I know each other. We also have Kevin here, our producer. Hello. And he'll be helping us with the podcast. So you'll probably hear him throughout the podcast commenting here and there. But yeah, so we met at our past place of employment, um, kind of united over a love of true crime. We had our own little private Slack channel called the Documentary Club. Do you want to tell them a little bit more about what that was? Our exclusive club, the documentary club. Very exclusive. Well, we just, with the, you know, we have such exciting lives. All of us would watch so much TV and then come into work and talk about the crazy um, documentaries that we'd watch. And that's kind of how we found out, like, we all are weird. And we would just discuss it. And then, really, people wanted to join. Word they, got out. It, it got out. It started to pick up. Uh, Kevin, what was your favorite documentary? Oh, mine was definitely Abducted in Plain Sight. Oh, my goodness. That one really bonded us. I couldn't get over it. We (laughs) could not get over it. If you have not seen it, do yourself a favor. After this podcast. Not right now, but after this podcast, you got to go on. Yeah, that was a good one. We really bonded on that one. Like, just when you think it's crazy, it just gets crazier. Yeah. So I think all three members of the documentary club are here now. Absolutely. So, what got you into true crime, Melody? Hmm. I don't know specifically what got me into true crime. I can't quite put my finger on it. But I think, like, ever since I was little, I was into, like, dark, spooky things. Mm. And then that just kind of naturally transfers to, like, crime once I started getting a little bit older. Okay. Um, I used to see a ghost when I was little. That's excellent. <laughs> I didn't know this. I'm, I'm learning this with all of you right now. Did it, did it have a name? Um, no, he did not have a name, but he used to freak my mom out because I used to tell her always to like come with me to this closet and I'd tell her, mira mamá, ven el señor, which means look mom, the man. What? And so like, I would like walk her over to <laughs> the closet and like, so I would always tell her to come see because the man was in the closet and obviously she didn't see anything. And so she would just like close it and be freaked out and tell me to stop saying that to her. Oh my God. But How old were you? I was little. I was probably like three or four it's creepier when I don't you say remember it in Spanish <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I obviously don't remember it but she remembers it so that's awesome you want to confirm my story you can ask my mom <laughs> I think I was born in just loving true crime I remember watching cops with my dad like mm. as young as probably like I was like three years old probably mm-hmm. watching cops I would watch I remember I don't, you guys remember Rescue 911 oh yeah Unsolved mm-hmm. Mysteries mm-hmm. anything scary I was totally into scary even as a baby stuff. my mom said I was like a creepy kid like <laughs> my you know kids will watch Sesame Street mm-hmm. and I was watching E.T. and mm-hmm. and Beetlejuice was like one of my favorite movies I love movies. the Addams Family uh, like 
as a small child. So I have always been drawn to that. Um, this, the first true crime, I think, that really got me sucked in. I remember watching um, the Lifetime movie with Farrah Fawcett Ooh. about Diane Downs. And I was around six years old. And that, like, I love a Lifetime movie. Yeah, and that one really drew me in. I remember watching it in between, like, watching um, the O.J. Simpson trial with my mom. <laughs> so good, good bonding time. It was good bonding. My mom's the original, the O.G. Oh yeah, crime, for sure. Crime person. I want to oh, meet yeah. her one day. We're, yeah, she sounds like a fun lady. She raised us to love true crime. She worked for a defense attorney when I was young and she was just so into it and that got us into it and now my kids are into it so but all right do you want to start with your story Melody yeah sure so we're going to keep it a little close to home we are from Tampa Florida everyone so the story I'm going to bless you with today is the story of the dream slayer and so we're going to take take it back to Tampa Florida 1933 Cigar capital of the world. At this time, Prohibition is still going on. It officially ended later that year on December 5th in 1933, but at this time, alcohol is still illegal. Um, The mob was also highly active at this time in 1933, and we had gangsters in the area like Charlie Wall that were very prominent people in the Tampa shady business scene. Back back in the good old days. Back in the good old days. (laughs) And so, living in the Ebor area of Tampa was the Lakata family, who we are going to talk about today. Members of the Lakata family are mom, Rosalia, who was age 44, father, Michael, he is age 47, he owned two successful barbershops in the downtown area, and he was a very well-respected member of the community, a pillar of the community, if you will. Uh, brothers Philip, 14, and Jose, 8. Uh, there was a sister named Providence Licata. She was 22. And Anthony Licata, a law student at Stetson University in DeLand. He had actually left for college the previous week, so he wasn't present for the events that we're going to discuss upcoming. Uh, he, there may or may not have been a German shepherd. Sources do not agree on this, if the family had a German shepherd or not. We are going to see that I'm going to choose to believe that they did not have a German (laughs) shepherd. Uh, I don't want to give too much away. But last but not least, we have Victor Licata. So Victor was born in 1912. The exact date of his birth is unknown, at least to me. I couldn't find it in my research, so (laughs) I don't know. He was born in 1912. This is not an accurate podcast. This is just for fun, everybody. (laughs) And on October 16 of 1933, Victor was 21 years old. He was 5'8", and he weighed around 127 pounds, so he was a slim man, slim build. Mm -hmm. He, um, he, I don't know why I put this in my notes. I said we wouldn't be allowed to wrestle each other. I think I was trying to (laughs) say that, like, we would be in different weight classes. (laughs) I Um, like that, though. That's funny. Some of my sources with a racist agenda, this will also make sense later, say that he was a quiet young man. But actually, more credible sources say that he was known for being crazy and that people in the neighborhood feared him. So a little bit more about Victor. In fact, a year earlier, the police had tried to enforce a lunacy petition to lock him up. And his parents begged them to keep him at home, saying that they were going to be able to take 
better care of Victor than any institution. That definitely doesn't would sound like a quiet to. man. <laughs> no, so that's not a very quiet man if you ask me. I've never known anybody that had a lunacy petition enforced, but I know you plenty have of to them. do some things. <laughs> I imagine you have to do some pretty bizarre things in order for them to try and enforce that on you. Well, in Florida, it doesn't take much, but... <laughs> Yeah, and they, yet they let so much Oh, there's so go. much lunacy that's still out there. <laughs> well, Victor was at that point, but again, the family was insistent that they could take better care of him at home than any institution would be able to, which in their defense, institutions were not that great at these times. So they were probably just trying to be loving parents and like watch out for their son and like not sending him, send him off to an institution. Understand. So I get that. Props to the parents. If it was my child, I'd probably be the same way i don't know um he was diagnosed with by psychiatrists with dementia precox i don't know if i'm saying it right but it is now called schizophrenia um, and his family did have a history of mental illness as well uh two cousins and a great uncle of his had been committed to asylums before so that's probably why his parents insisted to keep him home because in the genes they are, yeah they already had family that went through this and they were like no they're we well oiled keep, machine <laughs> we want to keep victor at home we know how this turns exactly out. we've seen this pan out before it's never a good thing and his brother also suffered from dementia precox. I don't know which brother. Uh, it does say that it was one of the brothers that was killed, but I don't know if it was, um, I don't know which one. Uh, may, so maybe this is also a good time to drop that his parents were also first cousins. So that's a little Ooh. bit more about Victor. Yeah. Let's let, let that resonate. <laughs> Let's just let that simmer and sink in a little bit. Talk about the family history. <laughs> family history. And on October 16th, 1933, police are called to the Lakata home around noon. Neighbors say that they heard commotion the night before, and they grew concerned because no one from the Lakata family was seen the following day. So they were used to seeing the Lakatas out and about during the day, like doing normal people things. Mr. Mrs. Lakata taking the kids to school, Mr. Lakata going to the barber shop and tending to business. Well, it was just a very strange break in the routine that they weren't seen. But it only took them one day to report it. Like you'd think before noon, not even a whole day. That's suspicious mm. right there. <laughs> really? You think so? Good neighbors. So, yeah. well, I think mean, <laughs> back then people um, associated and like socialize with their neighbors a lot more than they do today. Or is that just, I don't, I don't know. know. I mean, I, I just think, think that, if I, I mean, I notice my neighbors, I talk mm-hmm. with my neighbors and if I didn't see them for one day, I would be like, all right. Now, if a couple days go on, I'm going to be like, all right, something's weird. Maybe mm-hmm. I should call. Different but times. even by it's noon, it's like they didn't take their kids to school. I'm calling the truancy officer. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not going to sit there and watch. And, I, you know, I wouldn't be concerned quite yet. So that's just, I think it's interesting. I don't know. <laughs> I think it is interesting in today's day and age. You're mm-hmm. right. Because my neighbors probably don't see me for weeks. And <laughs> they're not calling the, the police saying, like, where is Melody? But... I don't know. For some reason, I just have this preconceived notion that, like, back in the day, like, I just picture, like, these ladies sweeping the front of their homes. <laughs> like, and, like Yeah. <laughs> Everybody, like, out and, like, walking and about and, like, waving to each other in 
them taking their hat off. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of like what goes through my mind. So to me, like makes sense. Like, oh, we haven't seen the Lakatas. Let's call the police. Like, I don't know. That's just how I think about it. I don't know. It's it's. I get you. mm, That's a good point. Maybe they did, and nobody came. Maybe everybody talked funny. How are you doing? See? <laughs> yeah. you see? Yeah. That's exactly Twisting what I picture. Tiny little mustache. <laughs> but then also the commotion that they heard the night before mm, maybe had true. something to do oh, with it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, before noon, the police was there. And uh, when the police arrived to the home, they found Victor Licata in the bathroom, looking all dazed and muttering to himself and kind of like rocking back and forth, not having a good time at all. And when they questioned Victor, he said that he had had a bad dream. And he dreamed that his dad, Michael, had come into his room, grabbed him, and pinned him against the wall. And then his mom, Rosalia, ran into the room with a huge carving knife. His older sister and his little brothers were there. Even some aunts and uncles were there, and they were all laughing at him. And he's quoted as saying, My father held me on the wall, and my mother helped him cut my arms off. (laughs) Then she jammed wooden arms into my bleeding stumps. When he woke up, he was afraid for his life. I don't know Is why. Is that I funny? Find, I don't know it why. Was, I find that it funny. was nice of her to provide replacement <laughs> stumps. You know. She did. She didn't just take his arms. At least she provided a replacement. I don't know why I find that funny, but it just cracked me up. <laughs> so he's Pinocchioing it at this point. <laughs> I'm a real boy. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said that he grabbed an axe, but it was a funny one that was flexible, like it was made of rubber. And he hit everyone and knocked them out, but he insists that he did not kill them. So all of this is very like cartoony to me, but this is yeah. a dream that he said that he had. So in reality, what had actually happened is he had axed his mother, father, two little brothers, and sister to death. Again, like I had said, some sources say that there was a German shepherd that was also a victim, but could not be confirmed. I'm going to choose to believe there was no German shepherd. <laughs> We'd like to think that there was no German shepherd. If know, anyone ki- can confirm that, well, if please let us know. Killing people. If anybody thing, was there, tell us. dogs, come on. Just unheard of. <laughs> Dad Michael was found in the front bedroom. Providence's sister and eight-year-old Jose were in the adjoining bedroom. And Mother Rosalio was found in the rear bedroom, clutching onto Philip Licata, who was still alive when found, but then later died at the hospital. That is so sad. Poor baby. He was still alive. His mom clutching Philip. That oh, is sad. I just can't even imagine. That's so sad. It's very suspicious that he had that dream and all this happened. I mean. Right? Pretty detailed. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Victor says that he had no recollection of having committed the murders. And he did admit that he had been smoking marijuana according to a source the night before and that he'd been running a sampling of some products prior to coming home from a moonshine run. So he was drunk and high. That will do it. <laughs> That'll do it, ladies and gentlemen. Police had seen enough and they took Victor to the county jail. Not really going to fault them here. He's covered in blood, <laughs> rocking in the bathroom. Everyone's dead. Like, yeah, I you're think looking that's where pretty he needs suspicious, to go. my guy. I mean, they wanted to cart you off before, but your family was the one keeping you, and now you they're killed all them gone. All, so <laughs> <laughs> it's time to go. <laughs> there was no trial, however. Two weeks after murdering his family, Victor was judged as insane and sent to the state hospital at Chattahoochee. So they took a look at him. They're like, "This man is clearly insane." They'd had that lunacy petition before, where they had already tried to take him to the state hospital, and his 
his parents stopped it. So he didn't have a trial. He but was they're just wishing they hadn't sent stopped to the that state now. hospital. Right? They're not wishing anything. <laughs> <laughs> because they're dead. And so this awful story was sensational for the time. It would be today's version of a viral story. Everybody wanted to know about it. The newspapers could not get enough coverage of the story. And they were just like working as hard as possible to churn out more details and more information about the Lakata Axe murders and the Dream Slayer. And as such, we must take all the coverage with a grain of salt because even though the reporters may have had the best of intentions, there were times when the reporting wasn't completely accurate. Uh, whether they didn't wait long enough to release a new story or sometimes they were just flat out inaccuracies while trying to meet a deadline. We just have to be a little bit cautious with some of the reporting and with what I'm telling you. So I feel like the newspapers back then were really creative. Yes. Like, they were very like poetic in their wording and they really sensationalized everything because, I mean, they didn't have the internet. They that's a good you little know, segue like, to my next point. Oh, okay. Some of the headlines. <laughs> Crazy youth slays family. Axeman kills four tampons. Stop this murderous smoke. Referring to the mur- <laughs> marijuana. So yeah, the drama was heavy in this time. Um, so yeah, that's what happened uh, on that day. The Lakata axe murders, though, were different than similar axe murders of the time. And why? Because this incident literally changed the course of history for marijuana legislation. So when these headlines caught the attention of Harry Anslinger, he made sure to fan the flames of fear. I typed Anslinger because I hate him. (laughs) He fanned those marijuana flames. (laughs) Right. So a little bit about Harry Anslinger. Could be con- he could be considered the father of the modern drug war. So this little bitch was the first head of the Federal Narcotics Bureau. Today we know it as the DEA. The borough was originally established in 1930. So as prohibition was starting to die down, and they're like, okay, well, this is not working. Uh, <laughs> what can we do now to make sure the girls don't have too much fun? <laughs> so they started focusing on other shit to criminalize because alcohol was failing. And Harry had to make sure his department remained relevant, of course. Initially, the focus was on heroin and cocaine. But soon, Anslinger turned his little head toward a more prevalent substance. The Lakata murders became a part of the Anslinger Gore Files. And so what that was was a collection of drug-related horror stories that were hand-chosen by Anslinger to strike fear into the people and further back this war on drugs. The collection consists of personal and professional correspondence, typescripts, um, books, 13 books shelved separately, journals, publications, photos, and different things that he hand-chose for for this use of like pushing this agenda of his about um, the devil's lettuce yeah about how awful <laughs> drugs are and how bad marijuana is specifically marijuana specifically I, marijuana i understand the coke and the heroin okay i can agree with them on that but you know the marijuana it was more widely used and as i was explaining like he wanted to make sure that yeah. his department remained relevant mm-hmm. and prohibition is starting to fizzle out they're like well we're not going to be able to maintain a reign on alcohol this is just not working it's a marketing thing yeah yep. <laughs> yeah he knew it and he knew that his department was probably going to fizzle out with it too so he needed to figure out a way to keep it going And so later, some of these stories were found to be completely fabricated or embellished with inaccuracies. 
Um, according to John Johan Harry in his book Chasen the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs, there was little scientific evidence that supported Anslinger's claims that marijuana caused people to turn violent. He contacted 30 scientists and 29 told him cannabis was not dangerous, but one expert agreed with him, and that is the information he presented to the public. Naturally. <laughs> right? <laughs> one out of 30. Those are not good odds, but he decided to take but this his little agenda. bit of, Exactly. <laughs> so he decided to take this little bit of information, and this is the one that he ran with, and this is what he used and presented to everybody. He'd be an excellent politician in these days. <laughs> He included the Lakata murders as part of an influential article called Marijuana Assassin of the Youth, published in the American Magazine in 1937. And guys, if you see the cover for this Marijuana Assassin of the Youth, it's hilarious. Like, it's the most dramatic thing you've ever seen. We'll post it on our Instagram and you can check it out. And it's real <laughs> from your government. So, so dramatic. I see nothing in that picture that is associated with marijuana <laughs> or scientific facts. <laughs> I couldn't even spell it right. Anslinger references the Lakota murders in that article. And this is a quote from his article. In Florida, police found a youth staggering about in a human slaughterhouse. Human <laughs> With an axe, he had killed his father, mother, two brothers, and a sister. He had no recollection of having committed this multiple crime. Ordinarily a sane, rather quiet young man, he had become crazed from smoking marijuana. As we know, we know Victor Licata was there. not a sane, rather young, quiet young man. That's would, far from the truth. I would say the moonshine would be more uh, the culprit than the marijuana. <laughs> than the marijuana. And he did not suddenly become crazed. Like, this was a long time coming. He had a history of mental illness in the family. family history. Exactly, which was sadly left untreated, but that's the harsh truth for Victor. Along with first cousin parents. Yeah, it was off to a bad start. Yeah, he, yeah it was not a good mix. There was also a, pro a propaganda film sponsored by the Borough called Reefer Madness that further pushed the anti-marijuana agenda. It's hilarious. I showed it to you guys last week. Do you yeah. remember? Oh my gosh. Yeah, we need to share that. <laughs> we'll share that. It's oh, crazy. And again, I will repeat, sponsored by the Borough. <laughs> In an effort to be fair to Anslinger, when he was 12, he was sent to pick up a package of morphine for a neighbor from a drugstore. He says he never forgot the shrieks of agony by the neighbor's wife because of her withdrawal symptoms or how quickly she felt good after dosing or how easy it was for a 12-year-old to buy morphine. However... I don't know. That was just my effort to try and be a little fair to him. Be like, well, this is where he's coming from. But marijuana is a morphine. And why is your neighbor sending you to the drugstore? Well, Where's your mom? Say, well, I was just going to say, well, back then kids did all the running around. But why was she taking morphine? Was he going just to like because she was addicted or was she in agonizing pain and she needed morphine that's shrieks of agony because <laughs> if i mean it that probably would be a started reason. with pain and, uh, yeah i was gonna say knows? if you're like if your arm's hanging off <laughs> yeah, yeah i'd want some morphine too. i'd say yeah morphine's effective at that <laughs> point so apparently this really had an effect on harry and this kind of is what led him down this war on drugs. 
I don't know. I think it's full of shit. He's full of shit. I don't even know if this actually happened. I think he probably lied. He probably made it up. He probably just made it all up. He seems to have an issue with people being chill. I mean, morphine calms you down. (laughs) (laughs) Marijuana calms you down. Maybe he he should try some marijuana or some morphine. Yes, exactly. So he was still a pretty shitty guy regardless. He favored a punitive approach from the beginning. He provided all who could push his interests forward with material to portray his department as fierce drug fighters. So kind of like anybody who could further this agenda of his, he would provide him like, hey, have you seen this article? Or hey, have you heard about this murder type of thing? He opposed factual education about the realities of drug use because it would encourage youthful experimenters. So like I had mentioned before, instead of mentioning the facts from those 29 scientists that said, (laughs) no, it doesn't make you crazy. He wanted to present all that bad. Yeah, because then they might want to try it out themselves, I guess, was his his reasoning for that. So instead, he would push the theory that drugs cause criminals to have the courage to carry out violence and that each addict made seven others in their career so they were infectious to the community. I don't know where that came from, (laughs) where this fact was was created, but this this is another one of his crazy ideas that he was pushing. Can you imagine? He didn't have a life. He just sat there thinking up his own facts. He, he and how really he didn't want to lose this. his job. Yeah. No, he did not want to lose that job. <laughs> what does it pay? <laughs> <laughs> the Bureau of Narcotics measured their success by the total number of years sentenced to drug offenders. So, for example, 3,248 years, 10 months, 18 days for the year of 1933. Woohoo! We had people incarcerated for 3,000 plus years this year. How great of a job are we doing? Is that not insane? Isn't that how it is now? Oh it's my God, <laughs> don't say that. I mean, I know we're in a pretty fucked up situation now, but I'd like to think that we've progressed a little bit. Moving on. <laughs> no! <laughs> the seizure of drugs was announced at street value, which inflated the price grossly. Wouldn't be surprised if that still happens. The systems to like measure the worth of the amount of drugs that they had confis- confiscated were not quite there yet, so it was a good opportunity for them to manipulate the numbers. Gotcha. And make it seem like they collected they a lot. It, yeah, exactly, to make themselves look good. So reporting high numbers when the department needed support and plummeting when they wanted a pat on the back. So like the numbers are really high when they're like, oh man, come on, we really need you guys to help us. And like whenever the numbers were low, it's like, look how good we're doing. Kind of like today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not a lot has changed. Not much has changed. So sad. He was also super racist. Uh, Here's one of his quotes. Reefer makes darkies think they're as good as white men. He was quoted as saying, and there are 100,000 total marijuana smokers in the U.S., and most are Negroes, Hispanic, Filipinos, and entertainers. Oh, my God. Their satanic music, jazz, and swing result from marijuana use. This marijuana causes white women to seek sexual (laughs) relations with Negroes, entertainers, and any others. Oh, Lord. I'm going to tell you right now, if I smoke some pot, I'm not going to want to go swing dancing. I want to go eat, and I want to take a nap. But what's wrong with jazz and swing? Oh, that's where all the drugs come from. It's the devil's music. I just had to take a break. Like, after I read that, like, this is messed up. That is really, that's some, I, the language. And today it's called the DEA, sponsored by the U.S. government. 
during this time, anti-drug crusaders switched from calling it cannabis to marijuana, hoping that the Spanish word would capitalize on anti-Mexican sentiment. So everything that they did was like very calculated. Sounds like it. He, like I said, he didn't have a life. He thought this out through and through. Mm. DEA, I think this he, was his life. Yeah, saving this department. Was he married? I believe so. Mm. Must have had an ugly wife. <laughs> Kevin. Oh my gosh. <laughs> his big win came in 1937. The Marijuana Tax Act legislation that Anslinger drafted himself was passed in 1937, effectively making the sale and possession of marijuana illegal across the country. So we can thank Harry Anslinger for that. He's the reason that everyone... I hope he is flipping (laughs) over in his coffin today with dispensaries on every corner now. Yeah. He's the reason so many people... He's ruined so many lives. Mm -hmm. So many people have all those drug charges and have spent years in prison because of his campaign. Because of this asshole. Another quote from Harry, the book that I had mentioned earlier within 30 years he succeeded in turning this crumbling department with these disheartened men into the headquarters for a global war that would continue for decades that's still going on today in the coming years hundreds of thousands of men and women disproportionately people of color would spend huge portions of their lives behind bars as you had mentioned. Oh, I just yeah. mentioned, yes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. With, we literally just said murderers that. murderers and violent people. Pedophiles exactly. get like, you know, a couple a months. A pat on the back. A slap on the wrist. Sorry, couple that's months. what I meant. Not a pat on the back. <laughs> I hope they're not getting a pat on the back. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, it be, people are in jail longer for drugs. And this was all by design. Disproportionately people of color. Like, mm-hmm. he knew that it was mostly, like, people of color that were using marijuana. He even changed it, it being called... He even changed the terminology from cannabis to marijuana, knowing that it was going to make it sound more inflammatory that way because he wanted to really, really prey on this anti-Mexican sentiment by using that word. Anyone who's not white, basically. Yeah, basically. And the jazz and musicians and swing dancers. Entertainers, how dare they? It's also said that he really went hard after Billie Holiday. I didn't delve into that too much, you know but I what? did see that. Now that you mentioned that, I did know that. You did? Because yes, again, I watched because that's what I do. Mm-hmm. The Billie Holiday. Um, it was like a like a the documentary. Yes, about her. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. What an asshole! Like <laughs> just let people just live. Live. Yeah. An all around terrible guy. Watch yeah. it because you'll you'll learn all about it. <laughs> So, back to Victor. When we left him, he had been sent to a state hospital at Chattahoochee. He was here until 1945. On October 14, he and four other inmates sawed the bars off their cage and vanished. How did, I'm sorry. Well, we know he's good you, with a blade right off the top. How do you have something to saw the bars off? With a hacksaw. He definitely didn't do that with a toothbrush, a no. sharpened toothbrush. Like They used a hacksaw. <laughs> have access to this? Good question. No one knows. The accomplices were never identified, but they definitely used a hacksaw. And the others were caught really quickly, but Victor was actually on the lam for five years. So he was out and about for five years. Good for him. I'm just kidding. <laughs> not sure what he was doing for five whole years but eventually he took a little road trip to louisiana where his cousin philip lakata 45 years old owned a waterfront restaurant in august of 1950 
And Philip said that he was scared of Victor because he had threatened to murder more family if he ever got out. So not sure if Philip was actually scared of Victor or if this is another one of those things that like reporters put in there to make the story have a little bit more pizzazz. Right. The key word being more. <laughs> right. That's kind of an admission of guilt. Like right this there. story <laughs> needs pizzazz. Like there's a lot going on here already. Um, yeah, he said that he was afraid of him. Um, all right, the way that you'd be afraid of any crazy man, Philip supposedly told a reporter. However, Philip fed him and invited him to visit again. So <laughs> doesn't sound too afraid. I don't think he sounds that scared if you invited him to visit again and you fed him. The second visit, Victor stole $170 from his cousin. In today's money, that's approximately $2,715.32. I looked mm. it up. That's a good little chunk of That's money. That's a good chunk of money. I wouldn't be inviting that guy back. No. Mm-mm. On the third visit, Philip had arranged for the police to arrest Victor. So I don't know if it was because he's a murderer or because he stole money. But I think he, it's because he stole money. I, I think, think he it's was probably okay the money. with the murdering. The but once time, he got robbed, he was like, wait, motherfucker. Now it's personal. <laughs> now, now you're hurting me. You, you killed my parents. That's one thing. But you <laughs> don't take my money. <laughs> No, that wasn't his parents. This Philip was his cousin. He did have a brother named Philip. Cut that out, Kevin. (laughs) You killed my aunt and uncle, but now it's personal because you stole $170 from me. So he was arrested and sent to prison at Rayford, Florida. December 1950, Victor Licata hung himself in his cell with a bedsheet, and his tragic life came to an end. So that was the end of Victor Licata. Um, But what if Victor didn't even kill his family? I'll just say that's quite the life for not really knowing. And he didn't have a trial. He didn't have a trial. Yeah, that's a big... Well, I guess back then, maybe even still today. If Well, no, if you're... Kevin, you working through these thoughts right now? Yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to process this. So the state never really had that burden of proof to like present everything. They just and, said like, he was show. crazy and guilty. They just said he was, he was deranged and sent him off to a state hospital. So it wasn't really investigated like a typical murder would have been. Do you think he did it? Well, let's get into that. So the axe murder theory, murderer theory, uh, there's theories that perhaps it was the work of a serial axe murderer. It just so happens that similar murders had happened in Tampa. However, the most recent one wasn't since 1926. So six years before the family, the Lakata family murder. The Rowell family was murdered in 1926. A man named Charles Blind Charlie Manuel was in jail for decapitating his girlfriend with an axe. Ooh, that's rough. Rumor has it B. Rowell of the Rowell family was going around telling people that Blind Charlie was innocent and she knew who the real killer was. I don't know if she actually did. Eventually, a man named Benjamin Franklin Levins was executed for the Rowell family murders murders but if b was right then who actually killed the girlfriend does that make sense Uh, no okay say it again (laughs) (laughs) so blind charlie was in jail for decapitating his girlfriend b's going around telling everybody oh he didn't do it but i know who did and that that's someone who gets decapitated yes and then the whole entire family gets off the person who was convicted for the family was Benjamin Franklin Levins. So if the person that was committing the axe murders was in jail, still in jail, who would have killed her? Gotcha. Uh, exactly. Mm-hmm. 
So someone who she was just getting on their nerves. <laughs> maybe it's like shut be up and they just axed off the whole family. I don't know. So that's one of the theories that maybe it was the work of a serial axe murderer. And also, um, you had mentioned that there was, it's very Around similar to another times. murder, mm-hmm. the Velisca axe murders. And both murders are very close to railroads. We know that there is a railroad that runs through Ybor City in Tampa. So it's a very easy method to get away and end up in a new city by the next day. There were a lot of axe murders back then. There were. I'm guessing it's because they had... The- you know, so much. They, everyone had an axe. You had to. Everybody had an axe. You had to, you know, chop wood to heat your house. But yeah, there were a lot of axe murders back then, and it did remind me of that story of how he would, you know, yeah, travel near railroads and. One source mentioned the Mildred family, but I could not find any evidence supporting the Mildred family murders. I was looking and looking. I couldn't find anything about the Mildred family murders in this time period, mm-hmm. um, but except for one source. Another theory is maybe the KKK had something to do with, do with it, that they were involved like in some sort of way. Even accurate? <laughs> I don't think so no, either. I don't agree with that one. I don't think so. The source for that was a little bit flimsy. Um, the Lakatas were a prominent family and that they knew this would strike fear into the community. And I hate the KK too, KKK also, but this theory doesn't really hold much water for me. So a more persistent theory is that perhaps this is the work of the Italian mafia. Many people think that the Lakata's large home in the city was above their means for a barber. Even if he did own two shops, they think that it was a little bit too much for them to, to own. Maybe the man was just really good at saving. People are so judgy. Victor had been on, moon, on a moonshine run, though, and people believe that they had a still in their home, but there's no evidence of this. Also, prohibition had not yet been lifted. So if Victor had somehow angered the mafia, I suppose it's possible that they would have come for his family. That does make a little bit of sense. And others aren't so sure because the mafia mainly preferred shotguns at this time. So I don't know. I can agree with that part, that they definitely would shoot more than mm-hmm. axe people because i can just see messy. i can see the mafia relation yeah though, because, because they already know the son's got this lunacy history and the family's got it so oh. they if they kill everyone Perfect except setup. him then it's not the mob it's the crazy guy. we've solved it <laughs> i don't think the mob really cares about that though <laughs> but i'm not speaking for the mob <laughs> we would never do that mob <laughs> Um, So again, take everything with a grain of salt. Um, A lot of times, whenever these reporters were rushing to publish a story, they may have uh, published conflicting information regarding the details of the murder. One source has Victor coming home around 8 to 10 from his moonshine run, which would have been before the murder. Another has him coming home between 1 and 2.30 a.m., which would have been after the murders. So if he had arrived before and was drunk and high... I could his, see that. Stumble in, just go straight mm-hmm. to bed. I mean, depending on what the scene looked like. but His room at the end may have been missed, and therefore he had not become a victim if he had arrived before the murders. Or if he arrived after, he again may have been drunk and high and went straight to bed without bothering anyone and woken up to a massacre. So we are not so sure there. 
Um, also, there's no credible evidence that he had even used marijuana. That's a fun <laughs> After fact. After all of this? <laughs> I wanted to save that little bit for the end. After all of that, he didn't even use it. <laughs> right? So marijuana was never mentioned in any of Lakata's psychiatric reports or considered a factor in the killings. It was established that he was mentally ill since before the murders. Detective W.D. Bush, city chief detective, said that he had made an investigation prior to the crime and learned the Slayer had been addicted to smoking marijuana cigarettes for more than six months. And that was published on October 17th, Tampa Bay, 1930, Tampa Bay Times, 1933. So that was the very day after the murders. A day later, the chief downplayed the role that the drug had on the murders. Uh, Maybe the weed only had a small indirect part in the alleged insanity of the youth. But I am declaring now and for all time that the increasing use of this narcotic must stop and will be stopped (laughs) very next day. I'm pretty sure it's not a narcotic. <laughs> Two days later, <laughs> October 20th, 1933, an editorial on page six of the Tampa Morning Tribune was entitled Stop This Murderous Smoke. The editorial writer called for the prohibition of marijuana, says it may or may not be wholly true that the pernicious marijuana cigarette is responsible for the murderous mania of a Tampa young man and exterminating all of the members of his family within his reach. But whether or not the poisonous mind wrecking weed is mainly accountable for the tragedy, its sale should not be and should never have been permitted here or elsewhere. So basically, like at first they're like, oh, yeah, he was addicted to marijuana for six months before this happened. And like the entire blame is on this. And then like a little bit later, they well day later, he backtracks like "Mm, maybe it only had a little bit to do with it. And then eventually it's like, well, whether it did or didn't have anything to do with it, it still should be illegal. Kevin, you have a point. And maybe it's the schizophrenia. schizophrenia. (laughs) Perhaps it was. (laughs) So there we have it. The brutal slaying of the family was cherry picked as propaganda to further a man's war on drugs. Instead of conducting a proper investigation, it was just easier to blame the murder on marijuana than to be sure what the actual cause was. So that is my story on the Dream Slayer, Victor Licata. The Dream Slayer. I like that very uh, <laughs> intense name for all of that. And really, it's just, it was, a, they just it took a just really horrible a, murder and they used it just to It was just a guy marijuana. that needed help. He mm-hmm. needed mental help. But they, yeah, they definitely didn't know about that back then. But they just used it. They used it. And they mm-hmm. didn't even give him a trial. So, yeah. I mean, with his dream, I'm not going to lie, it sounds like he may have done it. He may have done it, yeah. And he was just in an altered state, a mental state. I agree. Because it kind of sounds like he described exactly what he did and what happened. But I don't think it was the marijuana that did it to him. No, (laughs) no. He was schizophrenic. Yeah. Well, that was interesting. That was good. And that actually ties in with a lot of other things, like the other um, axe murders and... Mm -hmm. Just a little sneak peek. Charlie Wall. We'll maybe be talking about him later on. But um, yeah, that was a good story. Thanks, Thank Melody. Thank you. I just want to thank um, thank you guys for listening. And you can reach out to us at our Gmail, mostlymacabpod at gmail.com. We also have an Instagram if you want to follow us there. It's mostlymacabpodcast, all one word. And uh, you can see 
photos of our stories and different things and just keep up with us. Uh, We want to thank you so much for following us and just tuning in. All right, we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye.